0: Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather and to just join our voices corporately and express um, the desires of our hearts. We do want to communicate our love for you. We want to mean it. We desire that our obedience and the purity of our lives would match the intent of our hearts and the words of our lips. Father, would you speak to us now through your word, encourage us and strengthen us as we have the great challenge of living godly lives in Christ Jesus in this present world, and it's not easy for us. Would you give us the grace to live victoriously over the flesh? Through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you give us discernment to live victoriously over Satan and to understand the schemes of the devil and the world system around us? by which we are easily duped and pressed into its mold. Strengthen us, I pray, through the preaching of your word. Encourage us as we go on our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I wonder if the name William Borden means anything to you. William Whiting Borden. Perhaps the name... Borden of Yale rings a bell. Have you heard of that? There's a biography with that name Borden of Yale. He lived in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and William Whiting Borden was a millionaire by age 21. He was uh, ordained at age 25, and he had a heart for God. Interestingly enough, it was Borden's great wealth, and his name Borden from the great Derry family uh, was what gave them their wealth. And it was Borden's wealth which actually gave him the opportunity to see the needs to evangelize the world. Not too many young men at this time of history, um, the early 1900s, at age 16 could afford to just take a year and tour the world and Borden did it was while making this tour of the world at age 16 that god broke borden's heart and he woke up to the desperate need of the world's peoples for the gospel he came home determined to carry the message of the most difficult people group he could imagine to go back to them he had witnessed them the Chinese Muslims. Spiritually, it was said of Borden that he was precocious. Um, He was still in his early 20s when he was one of the directors of the Moody Bible Institute. He was one of the directors of the National Bible Institute, as well as, in his early 20s, one of the directors of the China Inland Mission. In 1912, Borden offered himself for the China Inland Mission Upon his acceptance, he sailed for Cairo, Egypt, proposing to study Arabic in North Africa before going on to the work that had broken his heart to reach China's Muslims. But in Egypt, he contracted cerebrospinal meningitis, and he died in 1913, and he was only 26 years old. Question. Was Borden of Yale... A fool or a wise man? Question. Was Borden of Yale's life a success or a waste? It all depends on your worldview, doesn't it? It all depends on if you're living for this world or the next world. And I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 this morning as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. And our Lord Jesus is... um, continuing his teaching to this at this great sermon on the mount passage and uh, he's wrapped up challenging or he's a section that we've been talking about where he's challenged us uh, to be careful not to do our good works or our alms giving or giving to the poor praying or fasting as three illustrations of spiritual disciplines that we be very careful not to do that for the eyes of men for the people around us but that we do it That our Father who sees in secret would see us doing that in secret. It's a great challenge on the authenticity of our spirituality. He then moves into this great challenge, and I need to warn you uh, that this is really a challenging passage. That if it's true, and it is true, that we can live for the next world, and that that is what brings definition and meaning to our lives that this passage taught by our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount could dramatically, as it has did Borden's life, could dramatically impact the course and direction of your entire lives. Let's read the passage and let's see what he's talking about. He's talking about worldview. He's talking about Whether we are to live for this world in the here and now, or live for the next world. Here it is, Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19 through verse 24. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. You cannot serve God and money. It's very important for us as we break down this passage to recognize that we're not making this up. That this is Jesus teaching us. I want to use four words to hang our thoughts around this morning. And the first word as we look at the passage is what pops out at us is the word command. Jesus is giving a command. This is an imperative. It's a directive. You need to notice that it's not in, you know, suggestion or question mark mode. This is Jesus speaking to the, to the crowd, speaking to us through the inspiration of scripture and the preservation of his word in our Bibles, looking at us, giving us a command saying, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You'll notice that as he gives this command, it begins in the negative, do not. A lot of what Jesus teaches is difficult to understand, but this is not difficult to understand. Do not do this. There's no mistaking it. You'll notice that he follows up then in the positive by repeating the exact same thing, essentially. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. He gives us a couple reasons. The first reason he gives is that that is where moth and rust destroy things. He's talking about a little a moth, similar to what we would picture as a moth, that was common, that would have come right into the mental imagery of the minds of the listener. And they would have had woolen or um, fabric blankets, clothing, but their woolen materials especially, there was a particular moth that would find its way into their bedrolls or their blankets, and it would lay eggs there, and those eggs would hatch, and the larva would literally eat the woolen material there. So his audience could immediately picture those nasty little things that ruin their good blankets. We don't relate to this as well as his audience would have because we live in pretty tight homes. We have tight screen, we have air conditioning, we don't leave our windows and our doors open as much and we have uh, um, uh, much less contact with outdoor air inside and we have clean linen closets and washing machines and dryers. We're not hanging our clothes out as much as people used to even in our own culture where bugs could get on and lay eggs and you could fold it up, put it away, it hatches and then you take it out to use it when you have guests or when it's a cool night to get your blanket out, you unfold it, and there's a big old hole eaten in your good fabric. And they didn't have stacks of these like we do. They didn't have closets full of clothes like we did. In fact, garments would be something that was part of the uh, of a treasured thing. To have multiple garments, and the quality of the garments really mattered to them. So they had a garment or a blanket that was eaten by the larva of this moth. They would have understood immediately what they looked like. We all can relate to rust, and to digression, to contamination. I know that Jesus is just pulling two illustrations out of the air here as he teaches these where moth destroy and rust corrupt. I think it's fair to say that it's symbolic of living in this world, isn't it? It's the second law of thermodynamics. It's entropy. It's things are winding down. Things don't get nicer. They get worse. Things don't last. Things rust. Things rot. Potatoes rot. Eggs spoil. Cars rust. Mildew, downgrade, the denigration of quality things, ruining them. So he's talking about that. Then he, he, re, he then reflects in the positive the exact same thing. The second illustration that he gives is where thieves break in and steal. We're, we're vulnerable. We have something that we really like and then somebody took it. But then he says in the positive in verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And in heaven, there's no moth and there's no rust and there's also no thieves. So the point is that there's a contrast going on here. Before we look at our contrast, though, in the passage, our second word coming off Christ's command. And notice that he he commands us to lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth. But he never tells us how in the passage. The second thing though, our second word is a concern. Obvious, obviously, if Jesus gives a command, it must have been something that concerned him. And it's simply the reality that we are so easily turned to investing much of our resources, much of our energy, much of what we're all about has to do with this world, doesn't it? Has to do with investing in the earthly things. Rather than Investing in eternity future in heaven. We're so easily caught up in the things of this world. And so it's a concern on uh, for Jesus and therefore it should be a concern of ours. If Jesus is concerned that our hearts can be divided or even turned away from eternal values to temporary values, that ought to concern us. So as we read this passage, our minds need to immediately go to the reality of, okay, Jesus gave me a command. I am now concerned about how do I lay up treasure in heaven? Because I know how to lay up treasure in earth. Oh, I know. I am a collector. I might need it. And so it piles up, doesn't it? And we have layer upon layer and we have stuff. We have so much stuff we don't even know what we have. And then, when we need it, we can't find it, so we go buy another one. (laughs) We're experts at this. And Jesus is saying you need to wake up and pay attention. There is a concern here about a propensity of a human heart, especially in an affluent culture where we can gather and we can accumulate and we have the creeping elegance sets in and we want the bigger, better, nicer, shinier one of what we already have three of. And heaven isn't on our minds at all. And we're driven. In fact, some of us are beyond driven. We're actually trapped. trapped. We don't know what to do. We're not even sure what we're living for. And we're not even sure why we're living. And we don't even enjoy what we're driven in anymore. And Jesus says, I'm very concerned about this. Investing in the here and now versus investing in the future. I want you to notice as we look at the passage and break it down a little bit, that as Jesus gives this command, it concerns us. But thirdly, I want you to notice that the whole teaching here of Jesus is in contrast. You know, I pointed out at the beginning that Jesus, is, be, Jesus began this command in the negative. Do not do this. And then he follows up with the exact same teaching in the positive. That's just a teaching technique. It's so important that he wanted to repeat it. He gets our attention with the negative, then he comes back with the positive. That's something that he's done throughout the whole passage. He did that does that regularly. As Jesus teaches, watch how he teach and learn from it. But he gives the negative, then he comes back with the positive. He did that, for example, when you pray, verse 5 of chapter 7, do not do like the hypocrites do. Then he comes back, but when you pray, go to your closet. So don't do it this way, but do it this way. Negative to positive. I want you to see that he slips into another teaching mechanism here, and it's loaded with contrast. The entire passage is laid out in contrast. And so what does that do to us? That puts us in tension. He's going to suggest this, and he's going to suggest this, and then we've got to decide where we are between the two. There's at least ten tension points in the passage. Let's take a look. He begins with this whole thing of talking about treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. There's our first contrast. He's talking about earth and versus heaven. Earth, heaven. There's our first contrast. So because of that, we also know that we're talking about our second contrast, which would be if we're talking about earth and we're talking about, uh, things in the, uh, uh treasures that we lay up here, things that, that our hearts pursue and there we find our treasure stuff. He's talking about materialism. Now we talk, we know we're talking about earth, we're talking about now, and if we're talking about heaven, that's in the future. So our second contrast that comes to our mind as he lays out earth versus heaven is now versus then. So another thing I have to deal with is, am I going to live for immediate pleasure? Am I going to live for things right now that I can see, handle, and touch? Or am I going to live for invisible things in the future that are yet to come? Another contrast that comes to my mind that's not in my notes is that that very much relates to this. It would be, say, living by sight or living by faith. There's a contrast that comes out of the passage. So we have earth, we have heaven, we have now, we have later. He's talking about stuff that, that erodes, that that crumbles, that rots and rusts away versus that which is eternal and lasting. So another contrast that we have here is we have something that is temporary versus something that is eternal. So he's talking about, are you going to give your life to something that is very brief and temporary? Are you going to focus on something that is everlastingly eternal? There's a contrast for you. Closely related to that is the idea of the rust and the moth. And he he talks about that happens on earth and it doesn't happen in heaven. And so we have clearly the the contrast between that which is perishable and that which is imperishable. I can invest in something right now that's not going to last and it's perishable. Or I can last in something by faith in the future that I can't see, that I can't touch, that I can't have right now. But it's imperishable. There's another contrast for you to dwell on. He then relates to the illustration of somebody breaking in and stealing. And that really stinks. I don't know of too many things that make me madder faster than somebody stealing your stuff. We were in the dorm at Appalachian Bible College. We had refrigerators in the lounges. And you, you, know, you get something and you get a box of ice cream or something. You put your name all over it. You put it in the freezer. You're studying late at night. You walk down the hall and you're going to get your ice cream. And some louse from down the hall has stolen your ice cream. And all of a sudden you're not spirit filled at all. You start going, you're so mad, you go up and down the hall and pound on the doors and screaming, did you take my ice cream? And nobody admits it, all those pastoral students. (laughs) And then you're just ready to, you know what it feels like to be stolen from? We've had people in our church who, while they were sleeping, have had people in their homes stealing and then leave, or they hear them leaving their premises or out a window. And how frightening and how how horribly vulnerable you feel. there's a contrast. It's vulnerable versus invulnerable. Something people can tamper with here in my garage, but I can also invest in something in heaven that is invulnerable and nobody can touch it. It's protected and preserved. He then moves on out of this contrast between 19 and 20 where he's laid this out. Earthly treasures versus heavenly treasures. So we have earth versus heaven. Temporary versus eternal. Now versus later. Perishable versus imperishable. Vulnerable versus invulnerable. And he, he gives the key verse to the passage, I think, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So... We find out that it's what we treasure that really drives us. And if we want to know what we treasure, follow your heart and you'll find it. Because your heart will follow what you treasure. We'll talk more about that probably another Sunday. Verse 22 then is this odd snippet of teaching. Let me read it again and you tell me if it makes sense. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What in the world does that mean? I found that commentaries and commentators on this passage uh, are not in agreement with what Jesus is suggesting. I think that it's, we, can, we can be confident That he didn't move on to another subject. Because look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And you cannot serve God and money. So he's still talking about the same thing. Jesus has just switched his illustration. And he's moving from the passion of our heart, where he's talking about the things that we treasure in verse 21, where your heart is, there will your treasure be. And he, he clicks into another illustration, and he starts talking about our eyes and how we see things. You see, what, what Jesus is talking about here has everything to do with worldview, doesn't it? It has to do with whether you see through physical eyes or spiritual eyes. How do you see the world? How do you see heaven? And as a matter of fact, as strange as it sounds, if you can't see the invisible, you won't get this passage. Now, wait a minute. woo! Pastor Van's talking about seeing the invisible. Well, I'm not talking about it, except Paul talked about it. So I can talk about what Paul talked about, because it helps me understand what Jesus talked about. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And let me tell you what I think this passage means what Jesus is teaching based on what Paul t- taught. So the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy. So he's talking about an eye. Jesus is in Matthew 6. You're turning to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Jesus is talking about a healthy eye that can see clearly. So you can define what's going on. There's plenty of light. And, and in turn, based on what you see, it, it keeps your body safe. And you're making wise decisions. You're not somebody who has a bad eye. Jesus contrasts, and this is one of our other contrasts, by the way. That's what we're talking about. Bad eye versus a healthy eye. He goes on and he says in the ESV translates it. If your eye is bad, he starts out saying, if your eye is healthy, ESV, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If you have a diseased eye, you can't see. And everything is foggy and nothing is clear. And so if you don't have a good spiritual eye, you can't see into heaven. You can't see the reality of the spiritual things that Jesus is talking about. Your eyes are bad because they can only see the earth. They're clouded. You're blind to the spiritual. And if you're really blind and your eye is dark and you're caught up in the things of this world, how dark is that darkness? Ultimately, I think he's talking about a heart of greed. Greed. And he's talking about the things that drive us because we have bad eyes and we're looking at the wrong thing rather than seeing the things that are invisible. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Look what he says. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's a little bit what Brett was talking about this morning when he said, you know, I could have gone to heaven. That would not have been all bad. As difficult as what Brett was in, and I remember, and I don't want to betray his dignity at all. But one time when I was at the hospital visiting Brett and we took off our scrubs and left the room And shut the door while we were outside taking off our our contaminated coverings. He wailed and sobbed. He was in such a dark, deep canyon and in so much misery. And you're going to walk in and say, hey, Brett, it's just a light and momentary affliction. That's what Paul says. You think you got it bad? Well, let me tell you, it is so good coming up that this is a light and momentary affliction. We don't get that. Partly because we have bad eyes. We don't have good eyes. Because look what Paul says For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. He said, Don't even compare it to what you're going through, bad versus good. It's beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, the ESV says transient. The NIV, I think, translates that temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. You get that? The things that are seen, right? Physical. They get in the way. You trip on them. Stuff. We can touch it, we can seal it, see it, we can feel it. That's the things that are seen. We are really trapped in the visible world, aren't we? We don't see into the spiritual world very well at all. Somebody asked me a question this week. They had watched a a horror movie and they asked me if watching a